1964, Marshall McLuhan, who's a famous Canadian communications and media professor at the University of Toronto, he famously, famously coined the phrase, the medium is the message. How many of you have heard that phrase before? The medium is the message. I studied it. I was a communications major at the University of Texas. And so it's kind of a, a short sentence, but it carries a lot of uh, communication theory. And the basic idea is this, that the medium or the vehicle for a message has a necessary impact on the message itself. Or another way to say it is that there's a symbiotic relationship between the form of a message and the content of a message. So for instance, you can take the same exact content and you can express it in a monologue. Or you could take that same content and express it in a song or a video. And the form will shape how that message is received. In fact, McLuhan argued that the medium actually has a far greater impact on the fundamental shape and nature of society than any single message that's delivered through that medium. So for instance, in oral cultures, the dominant sense organ was the ear, right? You had to really listen and pay attention to what people were saying. And in the print age, because the medium shifted to the visual, our eyes kind of became the dominant sense organ to receive information. Radio and television has reshaped how we restructure our time and how we consume content. And then you step into the digital age with the internet, and it's created a more globally aware society with more information than anyone could possibly consume in a hundred lifetimes. And it's ever changed the rate and the speed at which we receive new information. Fascinating studies are being done right now to track and give insight on how our brains are being rewired in this new digital age. Put it another way, what's more impactful, the content of one single video on YouTube or YouTube itself? See, the power of the medium is its capacity to extend the content of one message beyond the person creating the content. See, content is potent. Information is powerful. But it has to have a medium that has the capacity to deliver it broadly for its impact to be experienced. Just think of how fast things have changed going from the oral age to the print age to the digital age. And yet in every era, the mediums to deliver content have exponentially uh, created this, the, the potency of its scope and the speed of that message. A single idea has the power to change a person and how he or she lives. But with the right medium, a single idea can change entire cultures, people groups, and it can fundamentally restructure society. This morning, I wanna talk about God's medium to deliver his life-changing, culture-shaping idea that we call the gospel. See, God's message that he wants to get out to the world is the good news of the gospel. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the heartbeat of this church. So what is God's plan what is his medium to deliver that message to the world? What is God's plan to deliver the life-shaping, life-giving, culture-shaping, death-interrupting message of the gospel? God's medium is the church. His message is the gospel, and his medium for delivering that message is the church. 
As we begin this new series, Membership Matters, we're gonna start at the beginning and ask, who is the church? What defines her and what does she do? And in Ephesians chapter two and three, we're gonna see both the identity of the church and the mission of the church. And we've got this working definition of the church that's also gonna serve as our outline for the day. So if you're taking notes, write this down. The church is the beloved and redeemed people of God, filled with the presence of God, who are set apart for the purposes of God in the world. I'll say that again. The church is the people of God, filled with the presence of God, who are set apart for the purposes of God. So let's jump into Ephesians chapter two and verse 11, and we'll see that the church is the people of God. So some quick context as we're jumping into a new book here. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church in Ephesus. It's this local church, and he wanted to remind them of the gospel of grace. And he wanted to encourage them that though they are of of many different kinds of people groups from different backgrounds, he wanted to promote unity in the church among diverse peoples. And then he gives some helpful instruction as the book moves on, on how to live out the Christian life. What does proper conduct look like in the church, in the home, and in the world? And it was such a helpful letter that this letter became widely circulated amongst all of the early churches as the gospel was spreading and churches were being planted and being planted and being planted. In fact, if you are new to faith, or you'd love just a refresher in the Christian life, I would recommend to you to read this book of Ephesians. It's six short chapters. You can read it, the whole thing, in about 20 minutes. And it gives you a great insight into the gospel, who is the church, and how we are supposed to live. And so Paul has opened up the the book with the good news of the gospel, that it's by grace that we're saved and not through our works. See, salvation and grace is not something that we can earn but it's a costly gift that is freely given to anyone who recognized their need for forgiveness and realized that there is abundant provision through Christ. And with that background, we jump into verse 11. Look at, look with it, look at it with me. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Pretty cheery and hopeful, right? He begins by reminding them of who they once were. See, we have a tendency to forget who we used to be apart from Christ. And he says, don't forget that. Remember who you were before God made you alive and joined you together with Christ. You were defined as a Gentile. You weren't Jewish. So anyone who's not Jewish is a Gentile. And so by definition, you were an outsider. In fact, Jews who were culturally circumcised as an outward sign of their identification with God, they called them the uncircumcised. That's what Paul was saying in chapter 11. See, it was a physical reminder a glaring one of who was in and who was out. And he says, remember, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated. You were outside of the blessings of living in the commonwealth of Israel. You had no clue about God's promises. You didn't have access to his blessings. Because you were without God, you were without 
hope. That's what it means to be hopeless. It means to be without God. He's saying there was a time when you lacked the necessary identity to rightly be called the people of God. You were on the outside, strangers. You weren't a people with any kind of identity connected to the living God. Without God, he's basically saying, you were not a people. Look with me at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. And he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he did that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, therefore making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and also peace to those who were near. So now he's reminded them of who they were apart from Christ. And now he reminds them, this is who you are now in Christ. Because of Jesus, you who were far have been brought near. And it took the blood of Christ to do it. That's why I said it was a costly gift. It's free to us, but it was costly to God. Where there was strife between Jews and Gentiles, Paul's saying that is now over. Jesus now is our peace. And he's our peace precisely because he's the one that tore down that wall that was dividing them. See, once the wall comes down, now there's peace. Now these two separate peoples can be one people. It's like the Berlin Wall coming down, dividing Germany, right? Into east and west. When it came down, this broken people now were able to become joined together as one. Again, that's what he's doing here. Jesus broke down that wall. He's our peace. So no longer is the identity of the people of God in their Jewishness. The people of God are now defined in their Christ-likeness. Jesus, another way to say it, is the organizing principle of God's people. What defines his people? It's those who are gathered to Christ. Anyone apart from Christ is not his people, but anyone in Christ is his people. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility and he also fulfilled the law of commandments. Here's what that means. Jesus perfectly fulfilled and lived the life that you and I fail to live every day. Every day he lived, his thoughts were good, right, and pure. His actions never compromised his moral integrity. He always did the right thing, and check this out, he never left the right thing undone. In every day, in every way that we fail, Jesus succeeded. To steal from a baseball analogy, it's like every time he went out, he pitched a perfect game, and he had a perfect lifetime batting average. Perfect. He lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could be the spotless, perfect lamb for us. And when he died, he does the unthinkable. He gives his perfect life of credit to us, and in exchange, he takes on our sinful life. See, that's what's happening on the cross. It's not merely a transaction, but there is a cosmic transaction going on on the cross. Some, of this have, some people have called this the great exchange. One of my favorite ancient writers said it this way. 
He said, oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. What unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden by the one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. There's an exchange happening. Our sin is given to Christ. His righteousness is given to us. One result is that sinners like you and me, because of this exchange, now have life and forgiveness. We're adopted into God's family. family. And finally, we have an identity that we get to receive, which means we can stop the endless striving after an identity that we feel like we have to achieve. We have life today and also we have promised life tomorrow. We have access to God the Father as his beloved children. Another one of the blessings of the cross is that the penalty of sin has been satisfied and the power of sin is being broken day by day as we're being transformed more and more into the likeness and the image of Christ. And we also have a promised future hope that the very presence of sin will one day not only be removed from us, but it's gonna be eradicated from the very foundations and fabric of this world. He is making all things new. This is the good news of the gospel. But often we only focus on the individual realities of the gospel, right? That the gospel is just about my needs and my forgiveness and my relationship with God. But yes and amen, that is absolutely true. But not only are we saved and redeemed individually, what this passage is telling us is that our salvation is part of a larger plan of God to create for himself a beloved and redeemed people. First Peter says it like this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, may, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Hear this, once you were not a people, but now because of Christ, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, in the past, it was Jews and Gentiles separated. Now in Christ, there's a new humanity marked by unity in Christ, diversity and race and ethnicity, gender, and any category that you can come up with. It's passages like this that make racism and elitism nonsensical in the light of the gospel. Any dividing wall of hostility you can dream up Jesus crushes it and is the peace that brings diverse people together. He's reconciled us into one body, the body of Christ, the family of God, the church. That's why the church is the beloved and redeemed people of God. Now in your English Bibles, when you see the word church, it's actually the Greek word ekklesia. You can impress someone with that today, ekklesia. What I love about this word is that it was a common word in use well before the establishment of the church. It was just kind of a general word that talked about an assembly, when people gathered together for some kind of purpose. It's a gathering of people coming together with some kind of common identity, some kind of common story, or some kind of common purpose. And when people come together, the focus is not really on the event itself, but the people at that event and what they're discussing, right? And shortly after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the early church started to multiply and spread. And as they did, they gathered regularly. 
And they did so with this new common identity that we are the people of God. We share in a common story and we have a common mission. And in just a very short while, there was this etymological change of this word that no longer was ecclesia just talking about any general kind of assembly. Ecclesia became synonymous with the people of God. Not just an assembly, but the assembly. The early church hijacked the word and it became synonymous with the people of God. That's power, that's culture shaping. They were now defined by Jesus. He was their hero. And they gathered together because of the person and work of Jesus. Who is the church? We are his blood-bought people. We are his bride. We are his body. We are his church. And so it's not correct to ask, what is the church? We have to ask, who is the church? Because the church is a people, not a what. So we're not primarily a building We are not primarily an organization with a 501c3 nonprofit status, which we are. We are the people of God. I like how Mark Dever, he's a pastor out in DC, he says it this way. The church is not a place. It's not a building. It's not a preaching point. It's not a, hear this, spiritual services provider. It's a people. The new covenant blood-bought people of God. That's why Paul said Christ loved his church and he gave himself up for her. He didn't give up his life for a place, but for a people. This means at the very least, we are neither independent nor autonomous from, from God. Rather, we belong to Christ and to each other. We are joined together. The church is interdependent and we gloriously need each other. So church family, let me ask you this. What would happen if we started to see the church as a people and not a building and not an organization or an institution? What if we saw the church as a people, a connected family? Wouldn't that change how we interacted with each other? Would we no longer come to her for goods and services like a marketplace? What if we saw each other, really, I mean this truly, as brothers and sisters, as a gathered family, not merely mutual consumers all trying to get some goods and services? What if as a body, we committed to one another, depended on one another, honored one another, and cared for one another? And this is so tough for us because we've been raised in a culture that highly values, I would say even worships, individualism and independence. We so focus on the individual that when we hear these ideas of corporate identity, it almost sounds socialist to us, right? That's not what's going on here. This is a family. And so we've got to address that knee-jerk reaction. We often think that my relationship with God is personal and it's also private. It's just me and Jesus. Now hear me, family. Your relationship with God is incredibly personal but it's not private. We are a family and we are joined together. I need you and you need me. And look around, you need each other. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ and adopted into his family. You have brothers and sisters and we're meant to gather and we're meant to live in community with each other. 
So what would happen if we started to even change our language, change our whole belief system to see the church not as, a, not as an event we go to or an organization we like on Facebook or a place we come to with valuable goods and services? What if we really believed head, heart, and hands that the church is the beloved and redeemed people of God? I think we'd see some drastic changes. But not only are we the people of God, but we're also filled with the presence of God. Let's look at verse 18. Paul says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a dwell, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, in the preceding verses, Paul describes what it took to procure our reconciliation to God. Now he focuses on what that uh, ongoing, continuing relationship looks like. Paul says that we've been reconciled to God, our Father, catch this, through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Remember, one of the foundational Christian truths is that our God is a triune God. God is three persons and one divine being. So when we answer the question, who is God? The way we say that is this. There's one God who eternally exists as three equal, distinct, and unified persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I wish I could unpack all of what that means today. I don't have time to do that. But this is a great passage to underline or highlight in your Bible to come back to as we think deeply on who God is. Now, as we keep going, Paul reminds us that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we, the church, are fellow citizens of God's kingdom and members of God's household, his family. By the way, as you get to know Paul and his writing, he's the master at mixing metaphors. He, just, he doesn't pick, he just throws them all together. That's why he's my guy. One second, he's talking about the church as a family. Next second, he's like, don't forget you're citizens of the kingdom. And oh, by the way, I'm gonna tell you how the church is like this building, this temple of God. And each one of you are like the bricks building it all together. It's brilliant. It highlights all of the different aspects of our dynamic relationship with God. And in verses 20 through 22, Paul talks about how the church is now the new temple of God. Jesus being the foundational cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets being the foundation. And we, each one of us, members of his church, his household, each one of us is like a brick being laid down to build this new temple in which God's spirit dwells. This is why the church is also the people of God who are filled with the presence of God. You see, God is not content to just gather us together and say, good luck, church. Hope it works out for you, right? He says, no, 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 no. I've always desired not just to create a people for myself, but to dwell and live in relationship with you as my people. It was the plan all along in the garden, ever increasing joy with God. Adam and Eve, our first parents were created and God dwelled among them. But we traded that joy and relationship for self-determination and autonomy. You see, that, that runs in our DNA to want to be on our own, 
to reject dependency and to determine the course of our own life. But because God is a God of love, he couldn't leave us in that state of depravity. Left alone to our own self-determination and our own autonomy, we would self-destruct. And we see this all the time. With societies without God, they implode on themselves. And so God had to move against sin and, get it, uh, and, and rid it from his creation. And so as you read the story of scripture, you'll see this story unfold. It's the greatest story that's ever been told to bring back his people. That's the driving theme as you go from Genesis to Revelation. It's one story told over millennia. And at one point in the story, God's people have been delivered out of slavery in Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, right? You read about this in the book of Exodus. And so God is about to give his people a land to dwell and he fully intends to create a space where he can also dwell with him. And if you remember in Exodus, he raises up a man named Moses to be their deliverer and their leader. And they've been delivered out. And now he says, okay, Moses, come up on this mountain with me. People of God, you stay down there. And I'm gonna give Moses the law. It's gonna be my instruction to you to teach you how to live, not only with each other, but how to live with me. The law is a gracious thing. God is explicit in giving them expectations of here's how it works for an unholy people to live with a holy God. And while Moses is away and he's up on the mountain, the people get anxious. After about a week, after a couple, Moses is up there for 40 days. After a couple of weeks, the people go, man, maybe Moses isn't coming back. I don't know, maybe, maybe Moses fell off the mountain, right? So they get anxious, they get impatient. And so they create an idol. It's a golden calf. Now, some of you might go, why would you worship a cow? <laughs> Clearly, you've never had brisket. <laughs> but they create an idol, and it may not seem like a big deal, but it's actually a huge deal because this idol is one of the gods of Egypt. Think about what a huge slap in the face that is. God's just delivered them out of the oppressive slaveholder, and they get out into the wilderness, and they're like, maybe we should worship those old gods the God of our slave masters. God's working with Moses to secure land for his people and he's given their leader instructions on how this whole thing will work and they start worshiping the gods of the people who enslaved them. And when the dust settles, you can read about this in Exodus 32 through 34 today, God tells Moses, you know what? I'm done with them. How about this? You lead the people. I'll even give you the land. I'll take out all the enemies. It'll be a piece of cake. I'll give you the land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses is shocked. He says, God, who are we without you? We would lose our entire identity if you weren't with us. Are we not your people? You are our identity. Without your presence, we're not a people. You have to go with us or else we are nothing. It's an amazing story with Moses pleading for the forgiveness of the people of God. The point is that without God's presence, they're not a people. And eventually they get to the promised land, they build the temple and God's presence dwells among them. And if you fast forward a few hundred years later, you'll see the people of God never learn their lesson and there's these cycles of sin 
and they're, they're, they're destroyed by it, by their own sin. And time and time again, they're destroyed. And finally, the climactic uh, destruction comes when the temple is destroyed. And when that happens, there's this huge unanswered question. Where will God dwell among his people? Without the temple, where will God be among us? And here in Ephesians 2, Paul answers that question. How and where will God dwell among his people? Now, because of Christ, the spirit of the living God does not dwell in one specific location anymore. He dwells among his people, the church. That's why we are a people marked by the presence of God. The church is the new temple of God. See, the temple was always this place where people would come to meet with God, learn about his word, and experience his presence. And now that's no longer a place, but it's a people, the church. We are marked by the reality that God's presence dwells in the church. We are the new temple of God. And not only does God's presence make us distinct, but it's actually the power of God at work in our lives, both individually and corporately, to change us and to transform us into the people that he's created us to be. God's presence not only marks us, but it changes, it changes us. So again, what would happen if we saw the church as the people of his presence? The people of God who could say to the world, if you want to experience the presence of God, come hang out with the church. You wanna know what the love of God is like? Be with the people of God. You wanna know what the forgiveness of God is like? Be with the people of God. You wanna know what the holiness of God is like? Be with the people of God. You wanna know what the word of God is? Be with the people of God. You wanna experience the power of God? Be with the people of God. The church is the people of God filled with the presence of God. And now in verse seven, we'll see how he's also sent us out with the purposes of God. We're jumping over into chapter three, verse seven. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Pay attention to this verse. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that, he, that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, Paul has already helped us see that the church is a beloved, redeemed people. That's our identity. That's who we are. He's also helped us see how the church is marked and set apart by the presence of God himself. And now Paul says the church has a purpose. We're not meant to just spend our days idle. So this answers the question, what does the church do? What's her mission? What is her purpose? Paul says that he was appointed by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And when that happened, that started a church planting movement that has literally continued to thrive and grow and even reach right here in Waltham. And he says in verse nine and 10 that the gospel was a mystery that was hidden for ages, but now the good news has been revealed in Christ and it's going to be delivered through the church. Did you see that in verse 10? 
that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known both to the Gentiles and even to the rulers and authorities in heaven. Here's what he's saying. God's message is the gospel and his medium to deliver that message is the church. It's through the church that God's wisdom and glorious plan of the gospel might be made known here on earth. And Paul says it's reaching up even in to the rulers and authorities in heaven. What he's saying is the scope and scale of this medium is cosmic. The glorious news of the gospel is gonna go forth through the church and it's gonna go through the ends of the earth and reach all the way up to heaven. So what is God's communication plan and his mission strategy? It's you and me. It's the church. Christopher Wright, he's a brilliant missiologist, says it this way. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission is to restore and make all things new. It's to redeem and fix this broken world. His mission is to any and all who would hear and know and believe and repent and be raised to abundant life. And as he saves us, he calls us to participate into his mission. He gathers us together, not so that we can form this holy huddle, but so that we can go out and be his light to a broken world. He blesses us to be a blessing. He frees us so that we can go free other people. He loves us so that we can go and love our neighbors. Thomas Carlyle said that the man without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder a waif, a nothing, a no man. Church, God has not left his people without a purpose. We are the medium of his message. So how do we do that? I wanna leave you with three application points as you think about the purpose of the church. And it's what I said earlier, it's invest, invite, involve. Write those down, invest, invite, involve. Now, because we're Westerners, we tend to think in terms of linear flow. These are not um, step one, step two, and step three. These are guiding principles, postures of the heart for us to think about what it means to live a life that is characterized and shaped by God's mission. So the first one is invest. What this means is that we start to see people as worthy of our time, our our talents, and our treasures. That we would see people as worthy of our investment. Hear me, I don't wanna be mistaken. This will cost you, like literally cost you. It'll cost your bank account. It'll cost your calendar. It will cost you something. It's supposed to. When we do this, we can practice transformational hospitality where we are radically and relationally generous. We start to see our friends and family and our neighbors and our networks as people to love and to encourage and to bless. We see that God has uniquely placed us in community with people and we're to speak the gospel both with our words and our deeds. We don't stay safe and secure, secluded from the world. Rather, we move towards it in gospel love. So what would happen if we saw even our homes and our tables, not merely as places of our personal refuge, but as outposts of the kingdom? Hospitals for the sick, food pantries for the hungry, and safe places for the broken. What if we gave people the gift of our presence? Like when we were with them, we were just there. 
phones on do not disturb and saying, all I have, it may not be much, but I give to you right now, myself. I wanna hear you. I wanna serve you. This is what it means to invest. It's a posture of the heart. Number two, invite. As we invest our time and talents and treasures into people, we also look for ways to invite them into the rhythms of our life. Hear me, we don't see people as projects, but as people to know and to love. These rhythms will include our church life. Yeah, so invite people to the Sunday gathering. Invite them into your gospel community. Amen. But it also includes dinner on Thursday nights at your table. It means we coach little league teams and make ourselves available to the families on those teams. It means we actually have neighbors in our home. It means we say something. It means we extend the invitation to join us into our lives on a regular basis. It means we invite them into a relationship with Christ. This is tough because it means we're gonna have to cross what we call the pain line and tell them that it's Jesus who has forever changed and shaped our life and that he is our greatest treasure. There's an invitation not merely into relationship with us, but in a relationship with Christ. Remember, what God has done in you, he also intends to do through you. Finally, we involve we get involved. It means we involve others. So we don't see mission as something we do alone as these independent Lone Ranger um, Christians, but it's something we do as a community. It means we go out into the world as a diverse, beautiful body with many different gifts and talents. We are a force to be reckoned with in the world when we go out together. Because you have gifts, you have strengths, you have insights that I don't have. And when we go together, we are a unified, well-oiled body. It means we'll be proactive to get involved when we hear about ways our church family is serving others in our city. It means we'll be involved in our city so that we can be a presence of Christ to them. It means that as the Lord brings people to faith in Christ, that we'll say, hey, there's a new brother and sister Let's disciple them. Let's teach them to grow in their faith so that they become a fully mature disciple of Christ. We'll involve them in our lives. We'll see ourselves as a transformational community of disciples gathered together in Christ and sent out on his mission. God's message, family, is the gospel and we, his church, are the medium, his vehicle for delivering that message to a lost and dying world. We are the beloved and redeemed people of God. We are filled, church, with God's presence, and we are set apart for the purposes of God in the world. Let's pray.